Well, hi, welcome to the teaching portion of our online service. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this time in the Word uh, together. So I want to start out with a little story. When I was in seventh grade, I went to a tiny Christian school uh, in Minnesota, and it was raining outside one day, and so we couldn't go out for recess, and so we had to do our recess in the chapel. Now, true to my middle school self, I started horsing around with a boy, we're going to call him Danny, uh, who was way bigger than me. He was in ninth grade, I was in seventh grade, and I was a small seventh grader. And, you know, as it often happens in an unsupervised context with, like, testosterone craze, junior high boys, horsing around turned into something else because tempers flared and feelings were hurt, and pretty soon we were just in it big time. And uh, I found myself at one point pinned on the ground on my side, and Danny was literally standing on my head like this. Uh, and I was totally helpless and starting to get kind of panicked. Uh, now, I could see my brother, who was doing something else in another part of the chapel, um, he saw what happened, and he turned, and it's almost like a, like a switch was triggered in him, and he started sprinting at us. Uh, he, now, he wasn't as big as Danny, he wasn't as strong as Danny, but he was not to be messed with. He came and shoved Danny so hard uh, that Danny's feet lifted off of my head and didn't hit the ground until his whole body crashed into the drum set on the stage in the chapel, which is weird because later that week we were singing songs to Jesus, you know. So I know what you're thinking, and I'm not condoning violence in school. In fact, I'm so grateful that teachers today really seem to, at least my kids' teachers, really seem to be a lot better at helping kids navigate conflict than maybe my teachers were back then. Uh, but here's the point. As I was laying on the side, my side, and I looked up and I saw my brother, I, like he had this incredible like Captain America moment, right? Like he was looking at his fallen opponent, uh, and, and what I saw was this courage. In fact, my brother who is deaf signed these words, which means not my brother. It was awesome. It was awesome. That was courage. It was this moment where he stepped in uh, to defend someone, me, who couldn't defend myself. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary defines courage as the ability to do something that frightens you. In our modern kind of American uh, concept of courage, I think is best summarized by John Wayne in the movie Grit when he said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Yeehaw, am I right? Our culture's definition of courage is useful to a point uh, like when you're attempting to do a backflip maybe for the first time or you're trying to conjure up this inner strength to approach your boss for a raise or a promotion. But while the biblical idea is not less than our culture's idea of courage, it is far more. So courage is one of God's most frequent commands. It's almost 400 times in Scripture where God commands people to fear not. But here's the thing. It's always in conjunction with God's presence. Jeremiah 1.8 says, Fear not because I am with you. So 
according to the Bible's definition of courage, we don't have courage like cowboys have courage because of our own strength. We have courage because we have someone in our corner who is unstoppable. And courage in the Bible can really be felt like physically. Often it talks about uh, how courage can literally still our shaking hands and, and fix, strengthen our feeble, wobbly knees. This is awesome. Knowing that God is in my corner changes everything. It turns fear into faith. It turns opposition into opportunity. It allows small, normal people like you and me to do mighty things. So here's the truth. There will be a moment that you and I are going to face at some point where courage is no longer an option, where courage is required. So now what? And you may be in a moment like that right now. So we're going to look at the Bible. Now, we could go to a whole bunch of places in Scripture. There are these great, well-known stories like David and Goliath. There's Joshua leading the Israelites around Jericho. But I want to take us to the story of Esther, this orphaned girl who grew up in a foreign empire and had this moment of courage. And she had to say, now what? So let's turn to the book of Esther in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament, right before Job, which is right before Psalms. So what was taking place is this is about a hundred years after the Israelites were exiled into Babylon. And uh, the cards of power changed hands. Babylon was overcome by Persia. And now, uh, now the, a lot of the Israelites were in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. And the leader of the Persian Empire, this massive empire that spanned from India to Egypt at the time, the leader was this guy that we call King Xerxes. And he's well attested in archaeology you know, and, and history outside of the Bible. And he was this mighty ruler, maybe one of the greatest rulers the world has ever known. If you've watched, you know, movies, there are movies about him and there are video games uh, that, that star this, this king. And at the, the beginning of our story, Xerxes uh, is hosting a week-long, opulent, like, crazy drinking party with all of his buddies, like the elite of the Persian society. And, and this is a cap uh, like a, a celebration, the after party of a year-long celebration that recognizes his greatness and the greatness of his empire. It's crazy. And in the middle of this drunken stupor, uh, King Xerxes calls for his wife Vashti and says, Vashti, come here and show yourself off to all of my drinking buddies. Stupid. Wisely, Vashti refuses. Now, Xerxes goes off on a rant. He can't believe that his wife denied him and embarrassed him in front of his buddies. So he bans her uh, from the empire and then foolishly makes this law that says all wives everywhere have to obey their husbands no matter what. Wow, crazy. It's like breathlessly insecure, right? Well, after a while, the king sobers up and realizes what he's done, and that now he doesn't have a wife. So uh, he gets some advisors together, and his advisors say, hey, hold like, like, like a beauty contest uh, with all of the most beautiful you know, virgins in the empire and choose for yourself the best wife 
uh, from among all of them. So there we go. We have like this ancient version of the bachelor or something. And Esther is the one who's chosen and made queen. So after a while, time goes on, and the king appoints this guy, Haman. Now, Haman's the villain in the story. Uh, Haman is not a Persian. He's actually a Canaanite. Specifically, Esther tells us, he is an Agagite. And if you go back to 1 Samuel 15, you'll see that there's a long history of tension between Israel and the people of Haman. And so Haman comes into his position with this grudge against the Jews, and that comes into play uh, soon. So Haman's appointed as a top like advisor to the king, and, and everyone is bowing down to him and kind of paying homage, except for Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is Esther's older cousin. He's a Jew. Uh, like Esther, he grew up in Susa, and he'd been taking care of Esther because she was uh, an orphan. And Mordecai refused to bow down to this arrogant Canaanite leader. And how does Haman feel about this? He's not happy. He's, he's pretty ticked. And so he conjures up this plan uh, and goes to the king and says, Hey, king, there is this people group, the Jews, in your kingdom who are not obeying you. And you know what? They may throw a revolt. What are we going to do about this? You know what? I have an idea. Uh, let me take them out. Let me wipe them out and exterminate them from your kingdom so you can be safe. So the king agrees, foolishly. Uh, and he and Haman have another drinking party. Well, so all this happens, and Mordecai finds out. Uh, messengers are sent out to all the empire. Mordecai and all the Jews find out what's happened, and obviously they're terrified, and they go into mourning. So Esther sees her older cousin dressed in sackcloth and ashes, which is a cultural symbol of just being devastated. And she freaks out, so she sends a messenger to him. And, and they have this conversation through this messenger that goes back and forth. And what we're going to find in this conversation are four truths, four things about real courage that we're going to learn from right now. So let's go into Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 8. So he also gave him a written copy of the law. So Mordecai gives this messenger the law that says uh, the, the extermination order for the Jews and, and says, show this to Esther and talk to her about it. And he gave instruction that she should, get this, go to the king and implore to him and petition on behalf of her people. And this is the first thing that we learn about real courage is that real courage requires action. Real courage requires action. So Esther was concerned for her cousin, but what we see here is that her concern wasn't enough. She needed to do something about it. And so many of us, we equate concern with courage. You know, in Christian circles, we may hear about something tough that's happening, maybe way out there, maybe something we see on the news, maybe something tragic, um, you know, that we see or, or we, we hear of a friend who's going through a hard time and we say, you know, that's too bad. Uh, we should pray. You know, I'm going to pray for you, or whatever. And, and I'm all for prayer. There's a time for prayer. But look at this from James 5, 16. It tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. Now, 
Righteousness in the Bible is not something you feel and it's not something you believe. It's something you actually do to bring, like to partner with God in bringing his heaven and his kingdom to earth. So real courage requires action. And the second thing that we see uh, is in verse 10 of chapter 4. So Esther replied to Hathak, who is this messenger going back and forth, with instructions for Mordecai. And she says, all the servants of the king and, and the people of the king's provinces know that there is only one law applicable to any man or woman who comes uninvited to the king in the inner court. That person should be put or will be put to death unless the king extends him the gold scepter, permitting him to be spared. And then Esther goes on, Now I have, been inv- I have not been invited to come to the king for some 30 days. Now this may seem strange to you. Why would going into the king's court be a death sentence? But we can understand this. Like, you know, our president has a, a secret service. And their only job is to stop, even forcibly stop people who try to come at the president. Why? Because they might be an assassin. And Herodotus, who uh, is an ancient historian uh, who's writing about the Persian Empire, lets us know that the king of Persia had lots of enemies and was under constant threat of assassination. And so it makes sense that anyone who would barge into the king's court uninvited would be looked at with suspicion and might be killed. And so here's the deal. What this shows us is that real courage requires risk. Real courage requires risk. What it meant for Esther to go to the king was not just an inconvenience or uh, like an abstract kind of uh, feeling. It was a right here, right now, a threat to her very person. Anyone going to the king's court uninvited would be killed immediately. And the risk that Esther needed to face wasn't out there. It was personal. She would have to walk in by herself with no one to protect her, completely at the mercy of the king. You know, she had influence, but she didn't have authority. And you might know what that's like. You know, when you had to approach a boss, maybe, or a spouse, uh, or someone uh, who has authority that you don't have, that is very, very risky, and real courage requires that. The third thing we see in Esther 4, verse 12, in this conversation as it continues. So Esther's reply was conveyed to Mordecai, and, and he, Mordecai said, okay, take this answer, answer back to Esther. Don't imagine that just because you're part of the king's household that you're going to be one of the Jews that will escape. In other words, courage requires that you identify with people who are vulnerable. If you keep quiet at this time, liberation and protection for the Jews will appear from some other source, right? God's behind this while you and your your father's household perish. There's a lot there that we can't get into, but here's what I want us to zoom in on. It may very well be that you, Esther, have achieved royal status for such a time as this. Now, what's Mordecai saying? There's a way of looking at your life that starts by looking at the facts and the events and the things that have happened to you and through you as these kind of random disconnected things that tell us the story that basically life is random and God isn't there and life is hard and there's very little you can do about it. 
That's a, a way of looking at the world and a way of looking at your life that is just despair and it's hopeless. And according to the Bible, the opposite of courage isn't fear. Esther was feeling fear here, but she still had courage. The, the opposite of courage was cowardice, which is a, another way of saying that is hopelessness, a hopelessness that, that God is not going to come through. But the other way of looking at life is seeing how the facts and the events that may seem random are actually not random, but they connect and they tell us a story of God's activity in our lives and in the world. And here we see that Esther, like what Mordecai is telling Esther is that she has been put in the right place for the right time. And this is huge for us as we try to, to be courageous people. What we see here is that courage requires us to recognize that you and I have been put in the right place for the right time. And guys, this utterly changes the way we view our jobs, our families, our neighborhoods, the things that are making us suffer. Uh, It utterly changes the way we look at our season of life, the way we look at our enemies, the way we look at our money, all of this stuff changes when we recognize that God has put us in the right place for the right time. And real courage lets us see that you, not somebody else, but you have been given an opportunity to show courage for someone in your life who is vulnerable. And your moment of courage, your now what moment, might be before your very eyes. So do you have eyes to see it? Now there's the fourth thing that we learn about real courage from this conversation. In verse 15, we read, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, day or night. My female attendants and I will do the same. Uh, Afterward, I will go to the king even though it violates the law. And here's what we're going to zoom in on here. These five powerful words that Esther said, if I perish, I perish. That's incredible. You know, there's another story that takes place in a genocide that is far more modern. It's in Rwanda in 1994 when the Hutu tribe was rising up to exterminate their Tutsi neighbors. So friends were rising up against friends It was just a terrible, tragic moment in human history where millions of people died uh, simply because of their their ethnic background. Now, but there is a a story in there of a Hutu person. Uh, Her name is Olive Mukankusi. She was walking along the road where all of the houses of her Tutsi neighbors were being burned down and she saw two teenage girls who were Tutsi and they were terrified. And Olive had a choice to walk away, to ignore them, or to actually step out and protect them. And she did. She hid them in her home. And here's what she says. I knew these girls. I saw how much pain they were in. And I was ready to die with them. And, and, whatever, and let whatever would happen to me or my family happen. Now, psychologists, they call uh, people who put themselves in harm's way for the sake of another heroes or rescuers. These are the rare 
people who rise up to protect the vulnerable, no matter the cost. And if we go on in our story, in uh, Esther chapter 5, we see Esther has this moment. She walks right into the king's inner court, and, and she is standing face to face with the king. And you can just feel the tension, and you can just picture the guard reaching for his spear. The king raises up his scepter and and gives her permission to speak. And we see this beautiful reversal where what Haman meant uh, for the destruction of the Jews actually turns out for his own destruction. And Esther and Mordecai and all of the Jewish people celebrate. And this is the roots of the, the Jewish festival of Purim that Jews around the world celebrate to this day. So, this, you know, the story ends, and we could end the message here and say, okay, now go be like Esther. Show real courage, you know. But if showing courage was this simple and this easy, why is it so rare? And we have to ask this question. Why is it so hard for people to put themselves in harm's way for the sake of another when, when they have nothing to gain for it? And Simon Sinek, uh, in his talk about courage, has this great quote. He says, I've met people who literally have courage. They've put their lives on the line. They've thrown themselves into harm's way in order to save the life of someone else. They've done something that we would consider mad. It violates all tenets of survival uh, so that someone else will survive. Real courage, that's what this is. He says, I've talked to them and I always ask, why did you do it? You've got a wife, you've got kids. Why did you do that? And they always give me the same answer. Get this, because someone else would have done the same for me. What's Simon Sinek saying? He's saying that people who are truly courageous, are, they always have a friend in their corner. They always have someone they know will lay down their life, their safety, their livelihood for them. Another way of saying this is to say that you cannot be truly courageous until you're fully loved. And when Jesus was in the upper room, hours from being crucified on the cross by Roman executioners, he said this to his disciples in John 15. My commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. No one is greater love than this, than that one would lay down his life for his friends. Friends, we can't be truly courageous until we're fully loved. Esther's courage points us to Christ's real courage. Uh, Esther's courageous life points us to Christ's courageous death. And his courageous death frees us from all fear so that we can be courageous people. Now, here's what we do with this. You know, there are some of us, we have to receive Jesus' courage on our behalf. Maybe you feel small in the face of all of the evil and the suffering and everything that's wrong with the world. And it might be that you have yet to apply the courage of Jesus on your behalf, his love for you. And maybe you need to discover how that can free you from all fear and help you turn from the hopelessness and the powerlessness that you've known in your life to trust in him and his love. And I just invite you to do that if you haven't yet. It's very simple. It's just calling out to him in prayer and receiving that gift.
Now, a lot of us, we've done that. And what we have to do now is, is reflect Jesus' courage. Now, it, it didn't take long for us after we moved to Nevada a few, uh, quite a few years ago now to learn what a problem human trafficking is there. And I'll never forget the moment uh, my pastor was telling me the story uh, where he learned from an FBI agent that a man in Reno, Nevada could literally order a 13-year-old girl to be brought to his hotel room to be abused and objectified. And my pastor's response is really important uh, for us to hear. He said, not in my city. Not in my city. For all of us who want to reflect the courage of Jesus, there is a moment that we must face where we say, not in my city, not in my neighborhood, not in my church, not in my family, not in my business. A a moment where courage is required. And for some of us, for some of us that may look, uh, it may look very simple. You know, it may look like uh, small people doing normal things that make a big difference. I want us to watch uh, this story of Samuel, our friend uh, who was sponsored by Compassion International, because we have this really amazing opportunity to partner with Com- Compassion as they come alongside children who are the most vulnerable um, in our society. Let's check out this interview with Samuel. The opposite of poverty is not having a lot of money, but the opposite of poverty is having enough. So my life without my dad became a, you know, a life uh, of a survival mode. Not having a father figure is not having provision and not having protection. I became a provider of my own. My mom used to wash the neighbor's clothes by hand then she would send me at the age of five to sell cornbread. I thought I had no value, that I had no hope. In our country, in Dominicans, we were very flashy, so we like to, you know, show up what we have, you know, have a nice shirt, nice shoes. And I had nothing to show because everything was broken. I experienced bullying because kids would come to me and laugh at me and tell me, you're just a cornbread seller, you're good for nothing, you're nobody. The worst thing about poverty for me was believing that God had abandoned me. My dreams were very simple. I wanted to graduate from high school and then go to college to become a recording engineer, a musician, a singer. And and many times I found my mom crying. And she said, I'm crying because I have nothing to offer you. I started to blame God because of our situation. I started to cry and feel that I was nobody. And then I was like, man, is God really real? Imagine what's happened with those people living in extreme poverty that don't have running water, that don't have a job, that don't have anything, that don't have a house, that when it rains, the water comes into our house. That's what was happening to me. That when I was walking with my shoes, my pair of shoes were broken, and if I was walking while it rained, you know, I would get wet. But at the end of the day, you you know, God shows up and, and teaches us that He never abandoned His children. One time, we didn't have anything to eat in the house, not even cornbread. The only thing we had was God. And my mom is a, mo- is a mother of prayer, so she started praying, and God answered her prayer. He answered the prayer through a sweet lady from church, sweet lady from church that showed up with 10 plantains. Those are green bananas and two eggs. And I was literally jumping of excitement. But then my mom being so generous, she said, Samuel, 
I want you to take these two plantains and take it to Sister Luz. And take these two, take it to Sister Justina. And take these two and take it to Sister Maria. And then I was freaking out as I was doing the math. I'm like, okay, mom, you're giving away the blessing. What are we gonna eat tomorrow? And then my mom patiently said, Samuel, it is better to give than to receive. Um, last year alone, more than 130,000 children came to Christ through Compassion Teach. I was brought to the local church and they connected me through a sponsor. And my sponsor's name was Terry. Terry was my second mom. I don't know why she chose me. She wrote letters to me telling me that she loved me, that she believed in me, that she's praying for me. And those letters, more than anything, more than the support that I received, I couldn't believe that somebody cared about me. She was a person that got used to tell me that there's a reason to believe, that there's hope, that there's life. She was a grandma, so I know that she probably didn't have a lot of money, but she had enough to share and she shared it with me and sponsored me. And because Terry sponsored me, I was able to go to school, finish primary, high school, go to college. I got a bachelor's degree in recording arts. I couldn't believe, my mom can still believe that I was able to get an education. Now I'm like, man, I wanna be what Terry was for me to others. I wanna be a channel of blessing to others. Not just because I feel sorry, but because of the conviction that I'm here for a purpose and I want God to use me as he used the lady that, you know, provided the plantains and the, the eggs, as she used my sponsor, as he used Compassion, the local church, as he used different things and different people that want to be used by God. I want to be a channel of, of blessing and I, I am so grateful that I am can be a channel of blessing So what an incredible example, right, of, of how uh, courage uh, looks like standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And, and this might be a really good next step for you. Um, so I just encourage you, you know, if you have extra in your budget, go to our website. Uh, find a child, you know, pray, ask God to kind of guide you. Find a child and enter into a sponsoring relationship with them. Uh, you can do that with your life group, with your family, even with a neighbor. Let's be courageous people who are transformed by the, the courage of Jesus on our behalf so that we can courageously uh, step in for, the, for those who are vulnerable all around us. Let's pray as we close out our service today. Father, we're so grateful for this story of Esther, this orphan girl who against all odds and against all fear seized this moment of courage. God, we thank you how it points to your courage on our behalf and how that frees us from fear. So Lord, for my friends who are feeling afraid right now, I pray you would strengthen their shaking hands and their feeble knees, that they would stand up in your strength and in trusting you. And Lord, for those who are ready to uh, be a part of what you're doing in this world. Help us to reflect your courage. Show us people around us who are vulnerable that we can step in to protect. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and with all gratitude and with all worship. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next week.